This is Story and Rain Talks, the Story and Rain podcast. I'm Tamara, founder and editor in chief. After over 20 years in the fashion and print magazine industries, I launched StoryandRain.com, the digital fashion, beauty and wellness, entertainment, and lifestyle publication. And on this podcast, you'll get inside the story with the tastemakers and the trends that matter right now. From the actors you enjoy watching in TV and film to the most influential fashion and accessories designers, the costume designers responsible for all the on-screen style that makes its way straight to the streets, the beauty pros who set the trends in hair and makeup, the culinary creators who dream of all you want to eat and drink, the wellness experts who innovate in self-care and more, it's conversations with creatives, and we're exploring the origins or game-changing ideas and careers with those who are pushing culture forward. As a catalyst for creativity and through candid conversations with our community of cultural arbiters, we're your resource for discovering today's most interesting people, projects, and products with our high-low approach to style and the belief that magic exists in the diversity of mix. We're going to inspire you to live your most stylish life. Get inside the story right here. It's Story and Rain Talks. Carla Lolly Music has spent years working in many facets of food, from restaurant managing to editorial work to teaching. Today, she is a James Beard award-winning author, podcast host, and host of her popular YouTube cooking series, Carla's Cooking Show. Listen in for an episode chock full of recipes and tips, chock full of them along with tales from the culinary and publishing worlds. We begin with her tried and true go-to soup that she found herself revisiting during the pandemic and all across the years with its many iterations and get into food memories from her childhood and through college. We discuss how she thinks about meal prep, tips for new home cooks and cooking in college, where and how to get the best culinary training, what she learned about chefs cooking in restaurants during her time at Bon Appetit magazine, working for Martha Stewart, cookbooks, cookbook writing, and how she learned to write for the home cook. She shares her approach to recipe naming, what it's like when she's recipe developing, and her vision for her distinct visual branding. We talk about the importance of good on-set vibes for creating and making, the secret sauce that makes her cookbooks, ones that the home cook reserves a permanent place for on their counters. We discuss personal influences, and Carla shares some insight into food writer and television cook, Nigella Lawson, including why Nigella loves her work. I got the media maven's take on why cooking content has exploded online. And we talk the many ways in which people make cooking videos. Carla breaks down Borderline Salty, the podcast she shares with fellow cook and author, Rick Martinez, their relationship, how they met and why they complement one another. We wrap with the lessons found in learning, going and getting what's next, what she's cooking next, and a must-have list of her most favorite things. Here's Carla Lolly Music. Hi. Hi, Carla. How are you? I'm good. I didn't realize I still have my background. We've I like your our... background. Oh, thanks. We're actually going to talk all about your things like this, your branding, oh, your cool. background, all that good stuff. Carla, which exact dish was it that sparked your passion for food? Which dish sort of sparked what would become your career and love of cooking. Can you pinpoint it to one dish? I mean, it's the food that my mother cooked for sure, which I know is um, not a unique answer for a lot of people who love food, but I- We want to know what that is. What was it? I think it was probably her soups and specifically her pasta fagioli, which was the first dish I learned to cook when I moved off campus as a college junior and, you know, wasn't eating at the cafeteria <laughs> with any frequency. And like, I was like, I got to figure out how to do this on my own. And I still have like my handwritten notes from the phone call that I made home to her to get like, how do you do it? And what's the order? So it was this like, you know, oral rendition of her recipe, which she passed on to me. And then I put in my first book where cooking begins. And then during the pandemic, came back to it and made it every literally every Sunday for the family. During the pandemic, that became like the comfort soup, the comfort food. 
Yeah. I mean, I've made it like I had put, I had put it, the recipe in my first book. I made it like, right. It was a long established, totally. you made it in college. Like, that's what I love about that story. Yeah. Is it? Yeah. You made it in college. Yeah. You carried it with you. Yeah. And during this time of sort of uncertainty and change in routine, change in schedule, change in yeah. uncertainty in life, you know, that was what was like, okay, we're home, we're home all the time. And this is what I'm going to make. Yeah. And we have a lot of beans. We, we have, have a lot of beans and beans are like the perfect, right. I still have a lot of beans from the pandemic. Let's be honest. I was buying beans in 10 pound quantities during the pandemic. So a lot of beans. And so, yeah, that sort of has become this really important family dish for us. And I never, and obviously I don't look at a recipe anymore and I never really make it the same way twice. So it just keeps like, it's just always different, but it's always the same. Okay, can we stop and talk about what your iterations have been? Yeah. Because I think that's really fun. Sometimes it has a ham hock, and sometimes I don't have a ham hock. So I started putting anchovies in with the sofrito at the end. Ooh, that's a good um, too. Just to, like, deepen it. And that ended up being, like, a big winning combo. And then I was going to H Mart also a lot during the pandemic. We were going through large quantities of rice, large quantities of kimchi, And I bought the dried shiitake mushrooms, which I started putting that in. So like the tomato powder, the anchovy, the dried shiitake, and then a parm rind, like those now, I like it when they're all in there. And then like the bean could change, cranberry bean, gigante bean, another white bean, like the beans are all over the place. But I always start from dried beans. What were the smells and the visuals for your table like during the pandemic? Oh, I mean, garlic and oil and like toasted bread. I love that. And in a few (laughs) words, can you describe the food visuals and smells of your kitchen and dining table now, today, in summer, in the fall, Mm. in the winter, in the spring? Like, Mm -hmm. let's start with summer. What are the smells and visuals of your table this season right now? I mean, right now it's a lot of melon, tomato, a lot of vegetables, uh, I have a, CS, a summer CSA, so it's like whatever, whatever's in the CSA. I've been pickling carrots, really young beets, radishes, so very loaded up on veggies in the summer months. And my younger son went to sleepaway camp. He was gone for six weeks. And so actually when he's out of the house, like the mealtimes, a lot of the, the dinner pressure is off. And so there's a lot of stand, what we call stand-up dinners, which is just like kind of snacking around, pulling stuff out of the fridge, you know. Right. Here it is. It's on the table. Grab it when you can. Exactly. Yeah. You know, it was an interesting transition for me because I was a full-time parent and a full-time parent and a full-time uh, career person until literally until the pandemic started, like pretty much exactly. So I had always worked, you know, I was in restaurants and I was, you know, in magazines and had a very set like nine to seven schedule forever for my kids entire lives. So I'd only ate dinner with them on the weekends and their caretaker, their babysitter, whoever was with them was responsible for dinners. And then all of a sudden, and I always had guilt about it. I had crazy guilt, like, oh my God, I'm supposed to be home. And it was a lot of like, sort of weirdness and a lot of um, guilt about not sitting down and, and eating with them. And, but I was like, well, I cook on the weekends, like, like we cram it in. And then the pandemic came and these like kind of two magical years of having my older teenager like captive. I mean, both of them were just like our, our captives and we ate more dinners, like the family dinners that we had together over those years, like, we're probably more than we ever would have had, you know, in my, all of my career life. And do they understand you guys more as a result? Like, do they get you more? Have they cultivated favorite dishes in a way that they maybe didn't before? I mean, are you having those conversations or not? A little bit. Like we cemented our love of rice as a family and how important rice is. Rice makes the world go around. (laughs) I mean, you can't live without it, literally. And we had another cute like routine 
I got more into buying like two really good steaks or two good pork chops. And then we would split two and two for the four of us. We had rice every night. So the smell of rice cooking. I was doing stovetop rice until the end. And then I got a Danabe, which is one of those um, Japanese like earthenware pots. Yeah. That can be really beautiful, but they're very much a just a staple. And so the smell of the steam, you know, coming out of the rice cooker, kimchi was on the table every single night. So you definitely have that. It kind of didn't matter what we were having. There was like kimchi, a lot of, we had a lot of broccoli, a lot of cruciferous, like fall and winter to me is a lot of broccoli. There's a lot of broccoli. There's a dish that I make called broccoli D, which is just so, it's one of my most popular recipes and it's literally three ingredients. It's broccoli sauteed, really hard saute in oil. And then at the end, when it's like all charred and crispy bits, you put crumbled up aged cheddar into the pan. So it like melts. And then, (laughs) you know, when you make a grilled cheese and like the cheese comes out the sides and then it kind of caramelizes and gets crispy on the pan. So that's what happens. Like the cheddar melts down. And we had that a lot on Mondays with weirdly tuna salad. Just like sort of comfort foods like broccoli (laughs) and cheddar and... Tuna salad. Oh, it sounds so good. I can only imagine what your version of those foods would be. I mean, it was weird because I was also developing that sounds so good. So, but that book was due in August, 2020. Oh my God. Unreal. Yeah. You know, what is that? Sort of like five months after the onset? Yeah. With my first photo shoot in June. So like all of the recipes had to be done before June. And I was supposed to be working at home while everybody else was gone and doing my thing. They often were eating whatever I was developing for the book. So like when I was doing the grilling chapter for the book, (laughs) even though it was March, we were having like, you know, spiced, smoky pork ribs and like grilled turkey breast and like just going through this whole cycle of things that, you know, were kind of head scratchers on a Wednesday night, like. It's like freezing cold in the middle of winter and my family's waiting for me to finish grilling so they can have dinner, you know, just (laughs) weird. Not in total keeping with the season. Right. Yeah. 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 You went to FCI after Brown University. Mm -hmm. I've actually lived across the street from FCI. Oh, really? Which is the French Culinary Institute for many years. What did you study at Brown and Mm. how were you connected to or interested in food at the time? I studied modern culture and media. I was a lit and society major, which is now like, you can't even get that major. It's just the MCM. I was just going to say, what a score, because that's amazing. Yeah. Do you know that? I don't, but when I thought about you and thought about talking to you and I thought about your point of view on what you do in media. But I was studying like, you know, post-structuralist feminist theory and doing like reading Derrida and like throw, I just have memories of throwing like Foucault and and Derrida books across the room because I couldn't understand a fucking word of it, you know, and just being like, this is in English and I can't, I don't understand. But that major taught me like how to think critically and how to create an argument And I think I learned, you know, it's like a different kind of writing, but I learned how to kind of craft an argument and and how to, you know, what I liked about studying deconstructist theory was finding subtext and finding how a thing is not about like what it's about. So it just made me a better reader and it made me a better writer. But then there were classes where we like, watch the Simpsons, you know, and I, even at the time, remember thinking this, you're in college and you're watching, you're writing and watching about TV shows, like (laughs) good, great job choosing this college, you know, but food was really, it was a necessity and it was like a hobby. And it was such a big part of my, my upbringing, um, because my mom, in addition to being an amazing cook was a food writer and a cookbook editor. So I had eaten really well at home and I had also, because of her career, you know, been in lots of restaurants from the time that I was really little. Do you have a first or a second or third amazing restaurant? Just a segue for a minute. Like Mm -hmm. what's a good restaurant memory for you from that time? I remember being like 
six, five or six and being with my parents in restaurants at night and going to sleep under the table, you know, like lying down or with my head in my, in my dad's lap, just like asleep, you know, because my mom was a food writer at that time and a restaurant reviewer. So she knew a lot of chefs. And when we would go to restaurants, sometimes they would be like, oh, the chef would love to cook for you tonight, which for a five-year-old is like the worst possible scenario. I spent a little time being a fashion stylist, a wardrobe stylist for Top Chef. Oh, wow. Heading out for the night with like Tom and like Gail and yes. Emerald. Oh, and God. What are your picks for the best college and first apartment, first kitchen dishes to make? What would you say would be top four? It's definitely about not having a ton of money to spend on food, right? So finding foods that are nutritious and delicious and, you know, inexpensive. So I ate a a lot of pasta. I would learn how to, like, make a really good pasta sauce in your Dutch oven. So you boil your pasta in one place, then you build your sauce in the other pan. So then instead of draining the pasta, you're just putting it directly into the pot with the sauce like that is a life skill I would learn how to cook any kind of whole grain so whether it's brown rice or wheat berries or rye berries or spelt berries like these things again are inexpensive they're really nutritious and if you know how to make a basic pot of delicious grains you can turn that into a grain salad you can turn it into a stir fry you can throw it into a pot of soup like you don't have to be eating the same like that's the way i think about meal prep greens like don't buy baby spinach don't buy anything prepackaged don't buy anything in a cellophane bag you want to buy like big bunches of kale swiss chard escarole and again learning how to like braise or cook greens we call it like grandma style but braising in like garlic, spices, lots of olive oil until your greens are super cooked down. Because then again, same thing, you could toss it through a pasta, you could make it part of your grain salad, you could make it brothy, you could serve it with eggs, just so you don't get bored. And then, you know, if I open my refrigerator, literally 70% of my refrigerator is condiments. And condiments as a for a student or for someone who's learning how to cook, the amazing thing about a condiment is that it's like 10 flavors in one package. What was life like in those years between Brown and the French Culinary Institute? What were you up to? I went into book publishing. So kind of uh, stereotypically like got out of college. My parents had a lot of friends who were in the media world. My dad's also a journalist. And, you know, I just thought I would end up in books or magazines. And so I got my first job was at Grove Atlantic, which was a small book publisher. And I was the assistant to the editor. And like, we had a fax machine. And like, you know, I remember getting the first email account, like at that job. And I liked it, but I wasn't, it was not my passion by any stretch. I would like, why though? Now that you have so much distance from it. Yeah. The work is very solitary. So reading, editing, judging manuscripts, you know, deciding whether or not to sign on a book, like it's not very creative. I think what I've learned about myself now is that I really love a physical job. So like cooking, being in restaurants, like the adrenaline that I got from that, the way that you're constantly moving very satisfying and fun for me. I don't like sitting. I can't sit in a chair all day. I just didn't like it. And then you're not really working as a team either. Like everybody has their role, but it's kind of like more of a pass the baton. So, you know, when the editor gets done, they pass it to the copy editor. The copy editor gets done, it goes to the, you know, PR marketing. There's not a lot of back and forth. Yeah, it was just grown up and boring. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in around 2009, you made a real switch to magazines and the editorial mm-hmm. world. Mm-hmm. First working for Martha Stewart's Everyday Food and then at Bon Appetit. Prior to that, you know, you were a consultant, you were a culinary instructor. Mm-hmm. What did you love about those roles and what not so much? Yeah. Well, before I did any of that, I kind of went from book publishing to FCI and then into restaurants. So I'd worked as a cook for a few years before I got into 
consulting, teaching culinary management. I was the general manager at Shake Shack for two years before any of that. Danny Meyer is amazing. Yeah, he is. I've had a little bit of experience and contact with him and he is such an incredible person. Yeah. He just stepped down as the CEO of Union Square Hospitality Group. Until this day, it's crazy. I've never had Shake Shack, which is insane. <laughs> it's okay. Fine. They're not going anywhere. So um, Not at all. <laughs> yeah. So those jobs, like teaching and doing culinary, I think it was just a really, like, at the time that that came around, I had already had my first son and wanted to have a second one and working at the Shake Shack or working as a line cook is not a job that you can do and parent. So, you know, I think in the beginning of my career, I thought I was going to own and operate a restaurant. And like, that's what I wanted when I became a line cook. And that was like, that was the goal. And I was going to, you know, climb my way up and then I was going to be the chef and have my own place. And after you spend a few years in the industry, it's like, this is a bit as a business, like a total nightmare. So consulting and teaching was really fun. Their teaching was performative. I realized when I was doing it and I like talking and I like the idea that something in my career could be energizing or inspiring or whatever you want to call it to someone who was starting out, like just to be someone who people felt like they could talk to, ask questions of. I felt really lucky that like my parents were amazing mentors to me professionally But a lot of people, you know, especially in hospitality, like it's hard to find people who will take that time with you, you know. And then honestly, I got into magazines kind of on a lark because a friend of mine was friends with the editor of Everyday Food and she was looking for people and she was like, do you want to meet her and like go on an interview? And I was like, yeah, I'll like at the least I'll have like a good story to tell my students about like going through Martha Stewart HR or like whatever. Really interesting. And then, and then I, this is a teachable moment. Exactly. I was pregnant by them with my second kid, but no one knew. And no one knew even when I went on like the first five interviews there and I got the job, which was so crazy. And I was like, Oh, well, everybody's saying magazines are about to, you know, this is like pre tablet iPad, like, Everybody was like, oh, print, print is dead. Magazines aren't going to exist anymore. And I was like, yeah, maybe I'll get in while like, (laughs) while there's still magazines that exist. What are your own thoughts years later, years from both being a student, years from both being an instructor on how going to culinary school helps someone best moving into or owning a food business or a restaurant? Yeah, it's a a lot of people have like asked me if it's worth it. And honestly, I do think that the education you can get in a restaurant as an employee can be as valuable, if not more than going to culinary school. The trick is you need to work in places where you're going to learn good habits. It's really easy to get into a restaurant and learn really bad habits and not be exposed to great ingredients, not be exposed to excellent technique like that can happen. But if you choose well, you can skip it. Like for me, it was a transition time of figuring out, like, I don't want to do that anymore. I've always been into food. And that six months of being in the full-time course, like, made sense for me. But I learned more my first month as a line cook that I did in six months in culinary. I mean, it's just the learning is, like, it's constant and it's every day and it's like kind of mind blowing. So I would tell people to just get a job. <laughs> <laughs> what did you learn from Martha Stewart herself or from the workflow you experienced working at that particular publication? I learned things about the magazine workflow that I didn't know. I learned how to write a headline. I learned how to, you know, start to concept and pitch story ideas. I learned because Everyday Food was a digest size magazine. So there was very little real estate on those pages. And it was funny because when I was doing it, I thought a lot about being in college. You would have to cut text like kind of ruthlessly to get it to fit. And learning how to cut to fit is 
a hugely important and valuable skill to be succinct and to use fewer words to say more. That was huge. Cause then from everyday food, I went to Bon Appetit and it, it's always like that push pull between the art department and the editors. The editors want a bigger, you know, I come from that world too. You do. Yes. You know, I worked at interview. I worked for Cosmo. I worked mm. for Oprah magazine. There was a time when I worked for OK magazine. Mm. Actually I was there from 2011 till the end of 2019. And then I became an editor at large right at the beginning of 2020. Right. And then everything changed. The pandemic happened and everything exploded. Yeah. Well, what did you learn about food or cooking or chefs, restaurants during that time, that long tenure at Bon Appetit? Yeah, so much. I mean, learned like the difference between, you know, selling something to a home cook is so different than selling something to someone who's out to eat in a restaurant because... I mean, it sounds super simple, but the economics of it are that when you are selling a recipe to a home cook, you are trying to convince them to spend money and time to make this dish instead of like, you can just go and have this, right? Because even though a dish might be super desirable, like say you're going to Sean Brock's restaurant and there's something on the menu there that is like exquisite and you can't eat there without having it that recipe doesn't necessarily translate to someone at home, even though you're saying like, you could have it whenever you want. (laughs) You can't. So like writing things in a way for home cooks to be successful was the biggest kind of mind shift. I'm going to pause you right now because you've done such an incredible job of that. And I think that's what a lot of your fans say, you know, and we're going to talk about that, but I feel that a lot of people who put out cookbooks sort of purport to say, this is a guide for the home cook. Yeah. A lot of them say that and a lot of them just really don't deliver. I mean, I'm just like, as somebody who buys cookbooks, like there are a lot of people that don't buy cookbooks that don't look at cookbooks. I actually do. Yeah. And there are a lot that say that this is for the home cook. This has been simplified. This is technique. This is shopping. And they're not. No. And even at Bon Appetit, when I got there in 2011, we were very much all about like the hottest chefs with the coolest ideas and translating those recipes. And then you really exactly what you're saying. You have to strip away so much of that, that it really, it's hard to make a convincing argument a lot of the times and where the chefs feel compromised and the home cooks are still doing more than they want to do, or it's fussier. So over time it was like, Yeah, really thinking about what was going to be actionable, because I look at cookbooks a lot for just inspiration. I love to look at like what people are doing with their visuals. What are the dishes? How what the design like what you know, what's kind of like, oh, hmm, interesting. Like I've never I've never thought about putting that with that. Or I love the way this image. This is a tear sheet. Like this is great inspo for a photograph. So I look at cookbooks so much for just for inspiration and ideas. But with a magazine, you don't want someone to flip through it and be like, that was cool to look at. Like the whole goal is you want people tearing pages out, earmarking them, putting post-its on them. And if you can convert someone from to go from a reader to like get up and go into the kitchen and make this, like that creates this attachment, right? Between the reader and the people creating the recipes and the content for them. And I feel like at Bon Appetit, we were really good at that. You know, people trusted the recipes. People like believed that we were passionately selling something about the food that, you know, you could count on it. Like it was worth it. So whether it was a, a gadget or a technique or a dish, like, again, it was like learning how to be super convincing through words and images how hard is writing a cookbook? (laughs) You know, I I speak to a a lot of our guests, you know, I revel in sort of like, it's so hard to write a book. It's so hard to write a cookbook, a novel, a cookbook, a biography. It's so hard. What's that process like for you? It's gut-wrenching. You're pulling from everywhere in your being, right? Yeah, it's so much work. 
it's a lot of work. It's exhausting. And it has, you know, it takes two years to go from proposal to a published book. So the process, like that's a long time. You And if you're not in love with what you have put into your cookbook, by the end of it, you're just going to be like, I, <laughs> I don't even, I never want to see this thing again. You better pay attention to detail. You better be behind everything that's happening because that labor of love yep. requires that detail. And I think publishers now, I had great experiences. I worked with Clarkson Potter, but publishers now really expect authors to be the marketing, right? Champion. Absolutely. Like how much can you leverage your own social media platform for this book? How can you sell it? And as the author, you're like, but where are you? How, what, can you get me on TV? (laughs) And it's like, right. There's all that. Yeah. And things like, oh, magazine, you know, being the, like, can I get into like Oprah? (laughs) Corn chata recipe as seen in O magazine. Yeah. I know. Exactly. What I like most about working on cookbooks is, Coming up with the ideas at the beginning, populating the chapters and thinking about what the dishes are going to be and coming up with like recipe names. A lot of times I'll come up with a recipe name without having ever made the dish and then back into it. And recipe developing can either be great if everything is going well and the recipes are turning out, or it can be like a slow form of torture, like my zucchini fritter recipe, which like almost broke me. And I was like, it was the 100th recipe that I had to finish. Sometimes recipe development is awesome. And you're like, I love that. I love the way it looks. And I had such a fun time like cooking. And I was just like in it. I was in the creative process of it. And like the thing came out and it's good to look at like home run. And then there's parts of it where, you know, like there's a caramel tart and that sounds so good that I made not eight, nine times. I mean, just like the caramel was too runny. So you cut into it and it would just pour out of the shell. It's too stiff. So it's going to tear out a molar, like getting it just the right amount of fat so that it like bulges when you cut the slice, but it doesn't run. You know, again, you're just like going insane. Branding is clearly very important to you. We kind of touched on it a little bit. Both of your cookbooks and your podcast and your video series have strong visual identities. Has that kind of thing always been important to you? And where did you develop your look and feel? Who do you go to for photos? Because I find it extraordinary and really beautiful. Oh, thank you. That's so nice to say. It's true. It was something I never thought of myself as being visually really like adept that way. Yeah. I got to Bon Appetit and I was like, I, first of all, I never thought I was going to get the job because in the interviewing process, they had said they were looking for an editor. This was before I got into the test kitchen. I was just hired to be the features editor. They were like, we need someone who can really think visually and think about how the images and the words. And I was like, I'm not, there's no way I'm going to get this job. So that was something again that, I learned and learned how important it was. And also kind of at a time where food photography, food Instagram, you know, tasty. I think with Where Cooking Begins, the choosing my photographers and I worked with Gentle and Hires um, was about as much about, you know, there's a lot of photographers who can shoot food, lots and lots of lots of people. And when you're doing a book, it's like, the onset vibe needs to be super important. And from being on set for a lot of photo shoots when I was an editor, I knew that like if the vibes are off, it's just torture and like people are not creating together. And when you have a good energy on set, you like taking pictures of a Frito Misto and like high-fiving afterwards, like (laughs) it can be that fun, you know, where you're playing around. My sister is a She's a retired prop stylist. She's a ceramicist, but she worked for a long time as a prop stylist. And she was the prop stylist on both of my books. And I Gorgeous. swear to God, I could not. I've done it without her, like, because she gets me. She gets all of our references from, you know, growing up in the same house and my personality. But, like, I could say to Nina, my sister, you know, the the mood board for That Sounds So Good was, like, 
we had this image of Leonard Cohen in a bathrobe drinking a cup of coffee that is like fucking iconic. (laughs) There was like Sophia Loren, you know, just being Sophia Loren and then like a tablecloth and like a pink bag with, you know, cauliflower in it, but she got it. It was just like, and then I found a designer who also just got it. Like, I really just don't believe unless you're, I don't know, maybe Martha Stewart has this, that visual language along with everything else. But for me, it was a hundred percent about finding the right people to be on set with you and making this thing with you because it takes a lot of trust and, and reliance on like being surrounded by experts, honestly. It's like really important that my book not look like BA. Right. Right. And to do it in a way where it's like, how can you make it different than, than that? So even when you're trying not to do it, that brand is informing what your own thing is going to look like. Cause you have to be like, don't do it like this. Like if we did, you know, BA did tons of overhead, super saturated, directly overhead food shots. So going into my design of the first book, it was like, how can we tilt without doing a a corny three quarter angle? How can you break that? Not being directly above, not shooting into, but how can we get in on an angle and make it feel like you're kind of diving into the food, which was like different than what I had done on set for all those years. I think some people go like, even on my own video series, my, the totality of my thinking about it was like, it's me cooking food in my kitchen. Like if someone said, well, what do you want the show to be? It's just me and my food, me and my kitchen cooking food. And then I've like read about other people's process and like (laughs) they have mood board and reference and like, you know, pulling like other videos inspired by movies. And I'm like, oh my God, I am like so far behind. (laughs) Your first book, Where Cooking Begins, is based heavily on the idea that shopping for meals and recipes is an important starting point and is just as important as the recipes themselves. I want to talk about what the secret sauce is in your cookbooks. I mean, about that in particular, my big message to people was decide on the recipe after you go shopping, not before. Because if you go shopping with a particular recipe in mind, you're just going to shop for that thing and you're not going to see anything else. And if you shop knowing that you have a well-stocked pantry back at home, that you can come back to and you have all the oils that you need, you have the various grains that you need, like then you can just shop for protein and produce and figure out how to cook it because there's only so many ways to cook anything, right? And then it's just about making something like flavorful, honestly, like hot, (laughs) flavorful and well-seasoned and properly cooked. Like that's everything. So there's a whole section of that book that's just olive oil, salt, pepper, and lemon, because I really wanted people to understand that, like, it can be that simple and still be, like, mind-blowingly delicious. Your books are so special. They're very layered. They're like little treasures. What do people truly appreciate? I think one thing that people appreciate is that in every one of my recipes, I have a spin it section where you can sub different ingredients for the things that I've called for. And that came from a really genuine like place for me, because like I, we were talking about at the beginning, the pasta fajol, like I don't ever make it the same way twice and it's always good. So like, I'm not going to sit down and write a cookbook and say, this is only going to be good if you do this and this and this and this and this, like, The reality is, you know, you can sub leek for an onion and you can sub a different chili for paprika and you can kind of get away with, you know, using regular vegetable oil if you don't have or can't afford olive oil. Like, it's okay. And a lot of cooks on both ends of the spectrum, beginner cooks really appreciate knowing that they're not going to ruin it if they don't have like the one exact thing that I'm calling for. And very experienced cooks kind of appreciate it because very experienced cooks cook like that intuitively anyway. They're like me. They flip through a cookbook, get an idea, and then go cook it. So I wanted to talk to like both kinds of cooks in that. And then 
I think in the second book, the thing I wanted to do was to teach people about how to manage time. So the recipe process is written really chronologically. So I don't call for things to be pre-chopped in the ingredient list unless it's really important. Like if you're going to make a stir fry, you have to do all that chopping up front. But in this book, I will tell you to start cooking the longest thing first. And then while that thing is cooking, use inactive time to do other parts of the process. And that is the true, like flipping mise en place on its head. You know, I feel like we've been battering into home cooks that you have to have mise en place. You don't. (laughs) It's like, I love that. It's a lie. Restaurant, yeah, restaurant cooks don't do that. They like, put the meat down to sear. And while it's searing, they turn around and like start making the sauce in the other pan. Like that is truly the balance and the dance. So, you know, and I, I feel like it helped. I had just gotten a lot of feedback from cooks who were like, I'm a pretty good cook. I I got, I understand flavor, but like I can never get the timing down. Is there anyone notable who's a fan of your books that has totally like wowed you and blown you away? Yeah, Nigella Lawson was uh, like put my book in her cookbook pick and has been so lovely and sweet to me. And I interviewed her for an IG Live and she was just absolutely like... Why do you love her? She, you know, I kind of grew up when she was on TV and had her cookbooks coming out. And when I actually got to talk to her, what really blew my mind was she thinks about and is attached to food like we all are. Like, it's emotional for her. It is comfort. It is sustenance. It's connection. It's entertaining. It's like, and she told this story about, like, how food has been there when she was at her lowest points in her life where she, and she said, like, where you literally have to, like, crawl up the stairs because you are, like, that down. And that food would be, like, a, a solve for that, you know, in like a S-A-L-V-E kind of a way. And I think that that is something that I've heard from so many people and that I want to give to people as like through my work, like that's really at the end of the day, the point of the whole thing is like, I cooking is such an important part of my life. It has made my life better. It has been the thing that has created moments and experiences in my life that are so meaningful to me, like sitting around the table with my family. And if I can give you the tools that you need so that you can create some of those moments in your life, then like, that's like it, you know, that's kind of what it's all about. So to hear that, you know, this mega watt superstar also just like sometimes needs toast and butter because it's going to make your, you know what I mean? It just make you feel better. Yeah. So on the topic of influential people and who has made an impact on you, who have you worked with over the years? Who is someone who has impressed you in terms of their process, their technique, drive, creativity? I mean, I worked with so many amazing people in the Bon Appetit Test Kitchen, but Molly Boz and I really grew like an important and deep friendship um, that was cemented when we were across the country from each other. She was in California at the beginning of the lockdown and I was here and someone who like once I started working at home and didn't have that collaboration around me, someone who I could still like call and be like, I'm thinking about doing this recipe, but I'm stuck on this thing. And like, what blah, 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 and what would you do? And the way that she thinks about food and pairing and combinations, but also she's such an incredibly hard worker. Like she's just someone who, if something comes onto her to-do list, like she's doing it. <laughs> and that has been inspiring for me because I have to like constantly create fake deadlines for myself. And even though we're so like simpatico, we did a bunch of IGTVs together, IG lives together when we were separated and we cooked together over, you know, Instagram live and she can describe something to me to do with the food that's in front of me in a way that I just like totally get what she's saying. It just makes it super fun. You don't want to find the two of us in the kitchen. Like when you bring a dish over to a potluck, because you will like accidentally end up at a tasting with like <laughs> without ever asking for it. without ever being a part of that. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, but Molly is great. 
I want to get your take on the explosion of cooking content in the media. As someone who has a YouTube cooking series, a podcast called Borderline Salty, of course, you referenced Tasty's videos. There's the cooking content on TikTok, on Instagram. I mean, I think the reason that people love to watch it is because food is this universal thing, right? Everybody does it. (laughs) Everybody eats and, and watching processes is really fun on video, right? Like of course to see something transform, like cooking is a transformation. I think of it like the way that I watch makeup videos. Cause like, I love for me, it's watching makeup videos and, and there's tools and there's, you know, there's materials. Yeah. There's a lot of just like weird stuff that no one would ever make. And I feel like with tasty and some of those earlier, like pans and pans, we called them videos, like very short format overhead, you know, just watching something happen, but it wasn't edible. So right now I think food on network or streaming TV is so often about competition shows or like really outlandish, like, is it cake, (laughs) like weirdness or travel and exploration like Anthony Bourdain or even like Stanley Tucci and salt, fat, acid, heat. And right now, I think the sort of stand and stir or or an old fashioned concept of what a cooking show is, where if someone, you know, shows you what they're cooking and talks to you while they do it, most of that is on YouTube now. And it's incredible. Like I have watched videos of people making foods from other cuisines and cultures that like I would never be able to, you know, experience firsthand. You would never know about. Yeah. Yeah. And it's like amazing, you know, but I think a lot of people just go to YouTube now because it's always been a platform that was about learning and like you could look anything up and learn how to do it from someone. I mean, you have a great Carla's cooking series on YouTube, people are obsessed with cooking videos mm-hmm. and also tons of people are making cooking videos, whether they yeah. know what they're doing or not. I mean, we're talking about this. Right. What do you think people don't know about how to make a great on-camera cooking video? You know, what do people need to know as uh, people who are trying to be a cooking video hosts or how to create visually appealing cooking videos? Yeah. I mean, it's weird because you don't have to make what you and I would maybe consider a visually appealing video for it to be super successful. I've watched videos that are mega successful that get way more views than my videos do. And I'm like, for me, this is unwatchable. Like the light is terrible. It's being self-filmed. Like I can't see what's going on. I'm looking like I want to see production value. Like in my show, we have fun with the edit. We like you know, which we love. Yeah. And personality and like finding humor in it. But there's a lot of creators who I enjoy watching, but I could never make a show anything like theirs. You know, my son's really into mukbang. That's like another whole category. But, you know, and I think TikTok is kind of amazing for showing those little life changing things. Like, I think I learned from TikTok, you know, if you buy like a any Tetra pack, like a rice milk in the rectangular Tetra pack with the little screw cap. I always pour it like this way with the screw cap, like going towards the cup, but you're supposed to pour it the other way. And like the arc arcs better that like, I learned that it's the weird things like that on TikTok where it's like, Oh, that's what that thing is for. You know, whatever. (laughs) And that is also pretty irresistible. But when I'm on TikTok, I don't, even really want to watch food content. I totally get it. Can you describe your podcast? Your podcast is borderline salty, which is amazing (laughs) for the sake of this conversation. Also what you love most about listener participation Mm -hmm. that incorporates. Yeah. So borderline salty, the the most succinct way of describing it is car talk for food. So good. Um, I co-host it with Rick Martinez and he and I have known each other for a really long time. So the banter is in place and we also have really different ways of solving cooking conundrums. Like Rick is very much a maximalist and I feel like I'm more of a minimalist. What is the history of your friendship? Well, I mean, I met Rick when he came in to interview for an open position in the test kitchen and I was the hiring manager. So he walked in 
to my office for an interview and I took one look at him and was like, this guy like knows who he is, right? Rick's style, his own personal style, the way he presents. I was like, loved, you know, so we worked together for many, many years. The podcast I actually had written up to be a solo hosted concept and was pretty deep into talks with our podcast publisher, Pineapple Street. And then the pandemic happened and then BLM happened. And then there was like a food reckoning. And coming out of that, I just was like, I don't want to host a solo, like as a white, you know, creator, as a white food person, I don't want to host a show where I'm the only voice. Right. And Rick was the first person I thought of to be like the perfect, you know, the perfect companion piece. And we have different, like I said, we have different styles of cooking. We have different personal references. We have different like backgrounds and ethnicity, all of that stuff. And we just really enjoy cracking each other up. So it's a much more fun show, I think, because there's two of us. And it was always based around the idea. The core of the show is taking listener questions. And how do you think the two of you complement one another on this podcast, which is so great? It's just so great. Yeah, in lots of different ways. Like Rick is a more technical baker than I am. I'm more of like a feel your way through it person. He is, you know, an expert now in Mexican cuisine. Like my, you know, area of specialty is definitely Italian. He goes big, like the way he thinks about flavor is very different than the way I do. But we share an understanding about, you know, having good tools, good equipment, good technique and like always looking for great ingredients. So, you know, it's like a lot of questions can be answered two ways and they are both right. So when you have two different ideas about a thing, it's like, it's just better. And then people can kind of, oh, that that's more what I would, would do with this. But sometimes we'll get a question about like high altitude baking and like, I have no idea, but Rick has had to deal with this where he lives, you know? You've done so many different things. Here's a big question. What's left? What's next? What will round things out for you? Yes, great question. I was just asking this. They're literally trying to fall asleep the other night being like, Carla. This is a simple question to fall asleep to. You better figure, I was like, you need to figure it out. Yeah, exactly. Like (laughs) trying to fall asleep. And then my brain is like, what do you want? You need to figure out what you want so that you can like get it. Because if you don't know what you want, like you're not going to go get it. So identify it. There's another good tip, everyone. Yeah. That's a great tip. We're doing, you know, really want to, keep doing the podcast. Super, super love the process. Enjoy the medium so much and doing my show, but I'm pitching a couple of like TV show ideas. And that would be a really fun thing to like be, you know, YouTube is great as like a self-produced kind of uh, experience, but I'm like an ad hoc. Yeah. I'm like CFO. I'm like CEO. I'm talent. I'm studio manager. I'm accounts payable and receivable. Like it's, you know, it's like, <laughs> it's a lot. I get it. I understand. <laughs> I'm the sound. I'm literally the sound guy on our shoots. You're the yeah. sound engineer. Yeah. And we couldn't be more different than working with Pineapple Street because we show up and they're so good. And we're surrounded by like amazing people who are so good at their jobs. It's like, <laughs> and you can just like do the thing of just being the person. But I'd love to do a, like a network show and that kind of a production. That would be like a big learning curve. I mean, it would be so great. Cannot yes, wait. I would love that. There's a powerlessness that comes with like doing something that you don't know how to do and like might not be equipped for. And that it is getting to the bottom of the learning curve again and again that like that does it for me. Right. I love that advice. That's- yeah. Crazy good advice. Like you should be a little bit scared. It's like therapy. If you're not a little bit scared to go into therapy, also you're like not doing. You're not doing it right. I love that. That is yeah such a good nugget. Two more questions before the absixt, and they're like the same kind of rapid fire questions, which I'm so excited to hear about from you. Okay. Do you know what you're making for your next big gathering? Maybe it's Labor Day weekend or some other get together. Tell us what the menu is. Give us the wisdom. 
I have engineered like my dream beach day this weekend for my birthday. All I ever want to do on my birthday because I'm an August baby is have an amazing beach day. And the tour de force on this beach like picnic, we're going to have wedges of watermelon on ice on like a perforated hotel pan that's set over another hotel pan so the water can drip. So your watermelon isn't going to be like rolling around in ice water sitting on ice with little mini squeeze bottles of lime juice. We're gonna have tahine, flaky salt, and MSG. So everybody can like make their perfect salty, spicy, lime juicy watermelon bite. (laughs) That is incredible. Okay, and then before we get into your six list, which you have at the ready, which I love, which I know Mm -hmm. is gonna be great. Mm-hmm. What are, say, the three dishes that you've been cooking on repeat this summer? Definitely like many variations on tomato toast, but my favorite one right now, you mix chili crisp into the mayo. So it's like toasted bread, mayo and chili crisp mixed together, really nice slices of tomato, flaky salt, and MSG. I love MSG. I'm all about MSG. So is that like your number one go-to dish? Right now it is. I like make one and then halfway through it, I put another piece of toast in the toaster because and it's open face because I'm just like definitely having another one of these. Yeah. Okay, Carla, as we wrap, I'm ready to hear what is on your six list. Okay, just got my first electric rice cooker. It's a Zojirushi, hardcore Zoji. I, I have been obsessed with their beverage bottles forever. They're the best in the business. It's the hot, the cold, the best. But they're they're also known for their rice cooker. And we just got our first one. And my son, who is also as rice obsessive as I am, we made a batch and we were like, is it going to? And it was like so... It was so perfect. I was like, what have I been doing? Like anyone who's serious about rice has a rice cooker. I'm not a big maker of rice, but the other day I pulled mine out, made rice and had the same reaction. I actually have like a one in one out policy with the kitchen at this point, because the way everything fits is like the way that it fits. And I don't actually have any equipment that I don't need. And I don't not have anything that I do need. So I had to say goodbye to a pot to make room for the rice cooker. (laughs) I love it. But it was, it was that important. Okay, so this is uh, now we're going. We're in the we're we're in the bathroom. The Ren Ren brand R E N the jelly cleanser. I don't love everything, but the jelly cleanser because I ha- I have to wear like a good amount of makeup when I shoot, you know, because I'm under lights and whatever, and yeah. it just like melts everything off your face. So you put it on dry. And you like rub it in, rub it in, rub it in. And then you get your hands wet and you emulsify it onto your face. And it takes all of the makeup off. And it's like, if you've been wearing makeup for TV, it's like the, I cannot wait to get it off. You know, love the Rangeli cleanser. The other thing I just bought, and it's ridiculous. I have so many spoons, like big spoons that I use for cooking, for saucing, for like thinging, for stirring. And I just bought a new spoon from um, one of my favorite bookstores called Now Serving in LA. And oh, <laughs> it nice. just came yesterday. But my husband, I, I was like, I have to tell you something. And you're going to think it's pretty crazy. But I bought another spoon. He was like, I have a lot of spoons. Ken, who's one of the owners, he used to be a restaurant cook. And if he has something in their like tool area of the bookstore, then like it's legit. So I bought it sight unseen. It came and it's, it's beautiful. I love it. Number four, electrolytes. (laughs) In the form of what? Like powdered, just a powdered mix. Um, The brand is like La Superieure and it's called like fresh citrus. It tastes like grapefruit. So it kind of tastes like um, Fresca. Okay, but what do you put in? Bubbly water. That's what I've been drinking in this thing. And I was like, it doesn't do anything. It just makes you like more psyched about drinking water. No, but I think it does something. This, it's like, I looked at the ingredients, citric acid, a little bit of salt, and a little bit of sugar. So yes, maybe it's like makes it more... I'm into it. But I love the way it tastes. I love grapefruit. 
two, three, four. Okay, number five was my podcast, but we already talked about it. But I am obsessed with my podcast, and I love making it so much. And then the last one, this is another beauty makeup thing. But probably the question I get asked the most when I wear a certain lip (laughs) in some of my videos I don't always wear like a big vibrant color, but whenever I do, like I am psyched and I'll get lots of questions. So if anyone has ever wondered, it's the NARS matte lip pencil. So they're like these chubby little pencils in promiscuous and it's like a blue toned like lavender, but it's great on like a brunette, you know, brunette olive vibe. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. This was so fun. It was a pleasure. Thanks for asking me. What is going on with your podcast? Like what's next for you guys? When do you ramp up? Do you ramp up in the fall? Like, yeah, so we'll be on hiatus where I think episode 18 came out this week. So we've recorded 20. We just recorded our total kitchen nightmare for episode 20 today. And then we'll be on hiatus for a little bit and then we'll ramp back up. But yeah, we can't wait to make season two. Yeah. So good. If you ever need someone to call in, ask a question. (laughs) Yeah. Call us. I feel like we should meet it because we're here in New York together. Yeah. I would love to. Thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Yeah. Thank you. 